0: Welcome to Common Ground, a podcast series discussing new research and interesting projects in the field of complementary medicine. Hello, my name is Wendy McLean, Senior Writer and Presenter at Vitaly. Vitaly is a digital platform, a health professional resource and a distribution service all in one. Firstly, I'd like to begin by acknowledging the Gadigal people of the Aora Nation as the traditional custodians on the land on which we gather here. I would also like to pay my respect to their elders, past, present and emerging. Today on Common Ground, I'll be speaking with clinical naturopath Lisa MacDonald on Chronic Inflammatory Response Syndrome, or SIRS. Lisa is also an academic lecturer and a practitioner board member of the Australian Register of Naturopaths and Herbalists, Arona for short in Australia. Lisa has a bachelor degree majoring in psychology from Macquarie University and a master's of management as well. She gained her naturopathic qualifications at Nature Care College and is currently completing an honours degree in medicines management, complementary medicine at the University of Tasmania. After personal experience with chronic inflammatory response syndrome, Lisa became passionate about knowing all there is to know about SIRS or mould illness and all the confounding health issues that tend to come with patients who experience it. She is one of the few naturopaths in Australia who studied with Dr Shoemaker and has developed a unique process of analysis of patients' health to capture, track and treat multi-system illness like SIRS. Lisa brings together her knowledge of nutrigenomics, psychology, functional medicine, Dr. Shoemaker's protocols, and other SERS thought leaders into her own unique integrated naturopathic system-based framework to provide individualised treatment. Over the past decade, Lisa has supported hundreds of patients with SIRS mould illness, as well as chronic fatigue, anxiety, fertility, mast cell activation syndrome, tick-borne and biotoxin-related health issues. Taking an approach of blending traditional medicine and the latest science, Lisa takes a highly individualised approach and is passionate about finding the root cause of illness. She currently runs her own naturopathic practice from Wollamadigal country in Sydney, Australia, and she is an academic lecturer at Endeavour College of Natural Health in Australia. She is also a founding member of the International Society for Environmentally Acquired Illness and a practitioner board member of Arona. Welcome to Common Ground, Lisa. It's great to have you here today.
1: Thank you so much. I'm really excited to be here.
0: Yeah, and it's such an important topic and one that you personally have experienced. So perhaps you could start off and share with us a little bit about your background and what led you to specialising in SERS. Oh,
1: look, um, you know, I guess I've always wanted to be a naturopath since I was, you know, a teen Um, And before I journeyed there, I did do a psychology degree and a master's of management. I worked in global organisations, doing mergers and acquisitions and so on. Um, All the while, I was studying naturopathy on the side. Um, And so I guess once I I met all my goals in that kind of world, I pivoted and started my own practice um, as a naturopath and been doing that ever since. Um, But I guess 10 years ago, um, after my son was born, I was experiencing various symptoms uh, I thought I was just postpartum issues or maybe I was just tired or um, because my son was so unwell. Um, but over time I had more and more symptoms um, and I just couldn't shake them, no matter what I did. I did a lot of my naturopathic stuff and I couldn't work out what it was and it kind of really crept up on me because, to be honest, I was actually much more focused on my son. Um, and so he had the world's worst eczema you've ever seen, um, head to toe. It was relentless. Um, he had nights of weird breathing. He couldn't, uh, he would react to most foods. Um, and that included just being in the same room as, as when somebody was cooking certain foods. So I guess in hindsight, probably he had a bit of mast cell activation. Um, and my daughter had a few things too. She had food intolerances, gut problems. Um, and you know, one or two times she had like s- all this significant hair loss to the point where there was clumps in the bottom of the swimming pool. Right. Um, So um, there was lots of stuff. So, you know, for the peak, so I guess I was kind of um, fixated on, you know, worried about my children. And so, you know, for my son, for example, um, you know, the peak for him um, where he actually became anaphylactic and he had his first anaphylactic reaction by the time he was two. Um, you know, where his face blew up into what looked like the Elephant Man, this purpley, white, terrible thing with little dots for eyelashes. It was horrible and we didn't have a happy pen. Oh, my goodness. And fortunately, you know, the ambulance came in uh, um, there in time, you know. So, you know, the first few, his first few years was probably all-consuming um, and he was so bad that, you know, people used to come up to me and either offer advice um, or they would pull their kids away from them, you know, um, I, one person actually said to me once, "You know how you know how irresponsible I was bringing a child with chickenpox into the public." So it wasn't fun.
0: Oh, that's uh, awful.
1: Um, so you know, so so meanwhile, while all this was happening, I was probably getting um, more and more symptoms, but I kind of didn't notice because I was more consumed by my son's um, um, ill health um, and all his allergies, etc. Um, so I kind of. I kind of was ignoring myself in a lot of ways. But what was happening was that I was getting bouts of extreme fatigue. You know, I was forgetting stuff. Um, My energy would drop during the day. I'd get eye floaters in my eyesight. Um, My memory was shocking. I'd get this numbing and tingling in my hands, dizziness. So it kind of like progressively happened over time. So it's sort of, it's a little bit, um, I can't find the right word, but it kind of like it sort of creeps up on you. Yes. Um, and, you know, being a naturopath, you know, go, oh, you know, still having some symptoms. Say, oh, well, maybe it's this, maybe it's that. So, you know, I thought it was sugar dysregulation, so I would try and eat consistently through the day. I thought it was thyroid, so and, and no, you know. I, and then I sort of got really overwhelmed by small things and I would get cranky a lot. So what we kind of call mould rage. But, yeah, I would get cranky a lot. Yep. Um, and so still, you know, none the wiser of what's going on um and I guess I never really considered um if there was any sort of environmental issue because you know wherever we could we ate organic food yes we grew our own veggies we used low-tox no-tox cleaning product personal products and cleaning products Um, and even when we renovated our house um uh you know we installed like a low-volt kitchen um we did low-tox paint we did, you know, like, honestly, it yeah. was, you know, so the thought of, um, you know, our house that could possibly make us sick wasn't even on the radar. Um, but in the meantime, of course, we started getting mould growing on the walls, um, in the bedrooms, mm-hmm. in the living rooms. And I guess I kind of like cringe about it now when I think of it. But, you know, back then I'd think, you know, oh, well, you know, it's a bit of mould, you know, you just wipe it off, right? Right. You know. <laughs> um but it got worse um so you know I I was doing things back then which is actually the worst thing you could do um which I know now but I didn't know then um I would put the fans on in the bedrooms and I would wipe all the mold off the walls with a strong mix of um vinegar and clove oil right um thinking that oh well that's the best way to do because it's natural and it's not chemicals and blah 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 but it's not um so of course the mold spread um and Pretty much it would grow back in, like, the wipe marks of, like, where I had actually, used, you know, tried to wipe it off. Yes. And then, and then even worse, because the fans are on, it, that drew all the spores up onto the ceiling. And so I had this lovely pattern of um, mould, you know, starting to grow around the fan where um that was. So, right. Um, yeah. So we had, you know...
0: Um, we, we had it going on, you know. Yeah. Um, and that just sounds like a really stressful time. And as you said, you're being so sick as well yourself. You're not, you know, fully across and, and thinking of these things like the mould. So I guess how difficult was it for you to actually receive a diagnosis of SIRS and how were you able to discern it from other potential things? You've already mentioned, you know, blood sugar, thyroid.
1: Yeah. Well, you know, um, I guess at the time, you know, I was really searching a lot to try and figure out what was wrong with my son. Yes. Um, and so part of that was, you know, googling, my, you know, at all hours of the night. So, so after my googling and trying to try to make sense of what was happening with him, yes. I actually came across Dr. Schumacher and the whole mold thing. Right. So I started to look at his work, um, and I vaguely considered the mold that, but. To be honest, I was probably in denial. It was kind of like, yeah, okay, that's interesting, but ah, uh, you know, because back then, I mean, this is a long time ago. This is you know, um, ten years ago, kind of thing. You know, it wasn't it wasn't something. You know, there was there was things around black mold, maybe, um, but that was that was it. And so I was kind of like, mm, that's interesting. oh, in denial, you know, kind of. Thing. Yes. Um, <laughs> Um, but because it is such a huge thing to consider that your home that is your you know, where you live and you've invested in it and you know, emotion you know, to think that your um home is making you sick, but Look, I was really lucky. Fortunately, Dr. Schumacher um, came to Australia and I signed up for the practitioner training. Uh, And so at the time, there was really just a group of integrated GPs, a couple of naturopaths and myself, and that was pretty much it, and we did the training. So apart from Dr. Um, Sandeep Gupta, who I think has kind of, uh, had done his certification around that time, there really wasn't any practitioners to see that were across it at the time. And so we're all kind of learning together. Um, And so, you know, I guess the benefit in a, kind of a way was that I kind of learned by trial and error a lot um and it also meant that I learned that um you know I really needed to think about what Dr. Schumacher had to offer um and now you know down the track you know we've got other thought leaders as well because really um you can't you know I was doing a lot of things naturopathically but I was still in mould um, yes. So, uh, you know, so and, and then getting through the training was really was really challenging because there's a lot of reading um, and a lot of one on one sessions with Dr. Schumacher. Um, there wasn't really a structured course or webinars or anything I could just, you know, log in and learn about. Um, And so I had to, it was a hard yards. And of course, you know, my brain was a bit mushy because I was breathing in mould. Of course.
0: So,
1: so, you know, um, but, you know, in terms of a differential diagnosis at the time, well, I guess I had already ruled out other things. Yes. It was multi-system. It was multi, um, you know, symptom. Um, I'd ruled out other things. And frankly, we were living in a mould pit. Yeah. Um, you know, I have got old photos on an old computer somewhere, but sometimes I can't even look at that because it's actually horrific. But anyway. So, you know, that's how I got there.
0: Yeah, and that just sounds it does sound horrific um and uh, you know a real challenge, you know as you said, when you're suffering from that brain frog and you're trying to assimilate all this new knowledge um so what were some of the steps that um were involved in your recovery, and was it a quick process slow process how did how did you go about it <laughs>
1: um well well um the key thing w- was to get out of the house. Yeah, um, and so this is the big and probably the most challenging um, thing that for most patients, um, particularly because your brain's mush, um, and you know, o- and, and everything's really overwhelming. So that you, you know, the thought of having to organize and plan, uh, and your cognition and memory is so poor that you know, trying to get your head around things is really big. So the smallest things can seem like this massive mountain, and you're also really slow to sort of process slow to do things it's it's like being in it's the weirdest thing it's almost like being I don't know drunk and dement you know with dementia It was, it's kind of bizarre um and yeah. and and extreme fatigue um and so you know and of course there's the emotional side of attachment to your things in your house etc so that house for us for example had been in our family for since the 1950s it's where my mum grew up You know, I had lovely memories with my grandmother because that was my grandmother's house originally, Um, and we had, you know, we wanted to knock it down and have a self sufficient home. Like we had all this emotional attachment, you know, to the to the place. But getting out of the house was super hard because it was at the time when, um, you know, Sydney's housing prices was going up literally a hundred grand a month. You know. Yes. (laughs) Um. So it took eighteen months to get out of there. Yes. Um. uh, And what I say to patients now, and which which I if we all knew what we know now back then, yeah. I would have said to me, get a tent and pitch it in the backyard and go and sleep in the tent. Right. Like, you know, if I knew it was going to be that long. Yes. Um, yeah. So, you know, and, of course, there's always challenges with trying to find a safe place to move to. Um, um, and, look, uh, you know, the thing about our, the thing about um, you know getting away from the mold is often people want to um, do remediation and um, you know we looked at that um, because we did have it all over the walls etc and we did spend a lot of time um, meanwhile trying to work out where the moisture was coming from because the key thing is not it's not about. Necessary wiping, it it's actually finding out where the water's coming from, the moisture, and what's actually causing the the building to be water damaged or having such high humidity in the home. Yes, and we tried everything; like we checked all the sewage pipes, we you know, whatever, and there was still this dampness coming out. And and um and in the end, you know, in the in the in the few weeks, you know, as we were sort of starting to wanting to sell our house, um, there was this water that sort of was seeping up at the um back end of our house so we're kind of like on a gently sloping property right um and i looked at and I'm like, this that's weird this water's coming up you know right at the back of the property and i had that you know rainbow swir- swirl on top yes. clear but the rainbow swirl, which you know sewage right yes. um anyway the long and the short of it is after we spoke to sydney water and they came out and had a look there was actually a um, massive sewage pipe in the property behind us which is one of those six-foot-down, six-foot-high pipes like the town sewerage. Yes. Um, there was this person hole in the one in the, you know, at the property behind us and it had, and over the years it had caved in because they'd built a veggie patch or something over top of it. And what happened is over the years um, it had caved in, it had blocked the sewerage pipe and then the sewerage pipe had cracked and all those, till that time um, it had been leaking into the soil. So, so this moisture under a house was this terrible soup of sewerage. Oh. Uh, so, anyway, um, so, anyway, so, obviously, by that stage, we'd already decided we'd moving. We were already looking at a place. We'd already, you know, moved on in a lot of ways, um, but we left the mould visible in our house so that when the person who um, bought it, they you know, was basically going to be a knockdown. Um, so, right, So, you know, yes. I don't ha- have any bad vibes about that. But, um, yeah. But you know, the other thing, too, about these things is that, you know, at, in hindsight, I probably should have sued Sydney Water because they basically ruined our house. But your brain is so I, I, like the thought, even thinking of that or, you know, it's just the cognition stuff is such a challenge is is that I didn't even occur to me. Um, but, yeah. So anyway, we ended up finding another house and then I was on the road to recovery.
0: Uh, that's uh, what that's. Uh, again, a horrific story and journey, but I'm glad that you got out. You got into mm. a new place, um, mm. but once you're in the new place, was there anything that kind of set back your recovery? Was there anything that you did that you shouldn't have? Like, a, was there re-exposure to mold?
1: Yeah. Um, look, um, well, look, I made lots of mistakes. You know, where do I start? Yeah. <laughs> um, because, because you know, remember back then we didn't. I didn't have practitioners or anyone to talk to and you know it's so you're sort of building a lot of knowledge and sort of acquired from the education you had to that stage and yeah. I think like a lot of patients there is this element of denial like you you know and so or is it really true or is it not yes, yes. Understand. Um, and, um so and I and looked and to be honest I wish I could go back and give myself some advice but even then I don't know if I would listen because it's like crazy lady stuff so yeah. So um, so I guess, you know, we moved out um, and what I didn't really quite get, um, so, you know, it was apart from thinking I could treat them all myself with vinegar and clove oil, which is not a good idea. Um, the other biggest mistake was actually taking a lot of contaminated belongings with us, which mm. I didn't quite realise um, what that what contaminated meant and so thankfully you know we got rid of the stinky couch and stuff like because things were starting to smell yeah um, and then anything that had visible mold on it but what I didn't really truly understand is the things that are like soft furnishing like and books so you know I took books I took my clothes I took leather stuff all the things that you really shouldn't clothes you can um, work on but I had, you know, I had, like, this awesome collection of books um, that I'd been collecting from, you know, Aboriginal, um, you know, rare books about Aboriginal culture and herbal yes. medicine and stuff and so on. So um, it just didn't occur to me to do anything with them, so I took that with me. Um, and but what was, what we are really lucky was that because we were in between houses, I put, we put most of our belongings in storage. Right. And so when we moved into our new house, which I knew was safe, um, as the re- and they were in storage for a period of time, um, mold grew on stuff. So so when it was coming in, I was just standing the front door and sending it back out. So the poor removalists, uh, I think the I think the neighbours must have thought we were crazy because <laughs> who are these people who have just moved in and half their, and know, their stuff is on out. the yeah it's on the front lawn, right? <laughs> um, it's crazy. So yeah, so um, so yeah, and you know we settled in and look, thankfully. I had actually put our books, my books, in well, thankfully not thankfully, but I'd actually put it into a separate dwelling that was I was using as my clinic, which was pristine. My clinic was white, and it had you know it was all you know looked fantastic, smelled fine. Yes, it had a it had a. um, I even had like a um, like a like a s purifies probably a strong word but like something to try and prevent if anything was going to happen yes and I had all my books in there so I'm we're great we've sort of moved in into our new place We're we'll, we're already on the mend anyway because we've got out of it many months before yep. um but then you know I don't know how I couldn't even tell you how long it was it was like six months to a year before I really kind of noticed um but uh so of course you know I contaminated my clinic didn't I with all my books so I started to get, you know, symptoms again, but they were a little bit different. They were more like, um, you know, numbing and stuff in my fingers and things like that. Um, so, yeah, so there's been quite a few ups and downs in terms of, you know, working out, realising, especially about your home contents. Um, so I guess, um, and then I addressed that. So basically all my books and everything had, um, had to either, you know, go and or mm. I've put ones I can't replace into sealed plastic containers never to be seen again yes. um, but unless I'm outside fully gloved up exactly. like a crazy, crazy person um, so yeah so one of the things I often say to patients is look you know I know it's really overwhelming to move out etc but one of the you know and also to sit there and have to think it's overwhelming to even think about having to sit there and sift through a, um, a bookshelf as to what books you'd keep and what books you wouldn't like that, even just little things like that are so overwhelming when you're moldy, for one of a better term. Yeah. Um, and so I just say to people, just put it, everything into a really, in a really good sealed plastic container and put it in a separate dwelling. And, and when you feel better, go back then and have a look. Yeah. Um, and it's a really important message because at the time and no, one, no one wants to let go of this stuff that, you know, often people want to hold on to things. And it's not when you feel better and you go, oh, my God, I never want to feel like that again, Yeah. Um, that then people will have a look at this stuff and go, do you know what? Don't really need that. So, yeah, it's a bit of a journey. But, yeah, it's definitely. Um, and then, of course, you know, when you're sort of in day to day life, you know, you just have to be a little bit vigilant. Um. Yeah, about, you know, where you go and what you do, yeah.
0: Yeah, that's right. You know, it's home, it's the workplace, these things you need to consider. Yeah. And I mean, unfortunately, at the moment, we're, we're facing this mould epidemic, you know, in Eastern Australia with this rainfall um, this week again, you know, flooding for the fourth time in some places. Um, so when is mould an issue? Is, is all mould an issue or are there particular people that are more at risk of developing SIRS and mould related um, health issues?
1: Um, look, that's an interesting question. I mean, there's certainly some some people that are more vulnerable to SIRS or chronic inflammatory response syndrome than others. Yeah. But you can also have other things. You can also have an allergic response to the mould and or you can have what we call colonisation. So you can pick up things that like aspergillosis, which is lung infection, um, you know, caused by exposure to a very common mould um aspergillus. Yep. So there's a number of things that can happen um, to people when they're exposed to mould. Um, and looking at those that are more susceptible to SERS is really based on a lot of the work that Dr. Schumacher did. Um, and um, and that's really looking at the HLA-DQDR gene haplotypes um, from the work that he's done. But I, but in practice, I have seen um, people who also can have SIRS not necessarily having that susceptibility, but I'd have to say 99% of my patients do have that, that those gene, right. genes. Right. Um, Uh, But, of course, I'm looking at a skewed proportion of the population because they're coming to me for mould issues in the first, right, as opposed to someone who might be out there in clinic and seeing other types of patients. Um, But, yeah, so there's definitely some um, susceptibilities. And I think um, the other thing is, is that I think uh, previous exposure um, adds to the pot. Um, I think if people have had previous significant trauma, if they've got a viral load like Epstein-Barr virus, if they've had stealth infections um, and, and if their bucket's kind of already full, full yeah. and and it becomes a kind of little bit of a storm, right? So it's kind of like sometimes there might have been some things bubbling along and then they get in a situation where they're exposed to mold and that's just t- tipped it all over the edge. Yeah. Um, the important thing is is that to know as a practitioner is that um, not everyone, in, or actually even as a as a as people out there, is it is it not everyone in the household can be affected? So you can have a whole household of people, you know, four people, and one person is like absolutely flawed, significant fatigue. Out, you know, can't function, um, and the rest of them aren't too bad. And maybe one or two have a few respiratory or sinusy issues, and maybe another one's got a bit of eczema. You know what I mean? Like it's kind of like it's not necessarily the entire household is going to be affected. And yes. so, the problem with that is, is that then there's this issue around validation and people feeling like they're mad, you know, or people thinking they're mad and or not getting the support of other people in their household to actually make, do the changes that need to be made to that household to actually make them better. Yeah, um,
0: yeah, yeah. There, that would be a real problem. And um, I'm just uh, wondering as well, in your clinic, are you seeing people um, with COVID and mould-related issues and are they suffering more, would you say, or potentially suffering from long COVID?
1: Um, yes, I am starting to see people coming in who have got, um, a combination of long COVID. Yeah. I'm, are the juries out for me on to what extent that, um, those that have a, have a, um, um, a susceptibility to SERS necessarily are more susceptible to COVID a lot because if i look across my whole patient base i haven't necessarily seen all the people who've got more you know got sirs all having you know long covid right so i'm seeing a handful of people getting getting that and coming coming through the practice coming through practice um and again it's interesting looking at you know and there's more work i think we need to do on defining what um you know long covid looks like i mean obviously the who um, the World Health Organisation does have a set of criteria, but also on the ground, you know, if any of you have done any sort of the, um, looked at any of the sort of the training around at the moment of what we're seeing in practice, you need to take in consideration and then we kind of think, well, differentiate differential diagnosis between that and, you know, Epstein-Barr virus, which also is, often comes with it, yes. and stealth infection and SERS, you know, so I think I would just look at it in terms of it's, it's part of the melting pot Mm. and the storm that you might see with a SERS patient and consider all those things. And, you know, we're holistic practitioners, so that's our job is that we hold it all and then we work out, okay, what is it that we need to do to support this? But it's not about just one diagnosis. Often it's a cluster of things.
0: Yeah, absolutely. That's right. And you've talked about, um, you know, looking at, say, genetic markers. Um, So is there other testing that you do to go about diagnosing SERS?
1: Yeah so look i think in terms of the diagnosis for sars i think really the important message is there is no one test for sars out there right it's so it's really important that um that it's at this stage it is a combination of a clinical analysis a, cl- a clinical presentation so and some testing so clinical presentation would be you know meeting the um the um symptom clusters, you know, uh, that, that, um, you know, Dr. Schumacher came up with. We also see other things as well as part of SERS, but they're kind of like your baseline. Yes. Um, And that um, you've done really good clinical case taking and that you've done a timeline. So you've looked back and said, okay, you know, tell me about this, Um, you know xyz you know tell me about the fatigue when did that start where were you living at the time so there's the timeline of like what was their environment at the time is when some of the symptoms started to occur um and um so it's really good case taking as well um and then also we can do some of the um so there is dr schumacher's um um tests and their biomarkers and again they're not perfect nor can you look at them in total one of them in isolation you need to do a couple of them to look at the pattern of results because they're kind of just picking up some expressions of what some of the innate immune system on the cytokine storm that happens may be expressed in someone's body yep. um, but they're all you know some of those markers are also for other things so for example leptin on its own is not going to be useful because leptin can also be elevated with um, metabolic issues etc not necessarily just because they've been exposed to mold so That's right so you have to look at some of the other biomarkers and uh, you know if you go to my website you know there's information about um, those there yep. or even Dr. Schumacher's um, information. Um, but some of the things, that the challenges we have in Australia is we can't do all those um, um, biomarkers. We can't accurately get um, those biomarkers done in Australia. So there's some that we can do and some that we can't. So right. the ones you can do in most labs across Australia and the mainstream labs are things like leptin and vasointestinal peptide and copeptin and osmolality. They're kind of like the key ones you can usually get. We can also test for the hla dqDR um, genes um, and looking at those haplotypes yes. um, and remembering that genes are not a diagnosis, genes are just a susceptibility, and also remembering that a lot of that, um, the gene haplotypes um, have been based on Dr. Schumacher's work. So there's not a significant and uh, hopefully there will be over time, but, you know, it's not based on one piece of research. It's based on a lot of clinical data. Yes. Um, and then, of course, they need to have been exposed. And sometimes that's hard to unpack because people go, "Oh no, I don't have mold in my house." Um, so there's also really good questioning around, um, you know, have you had any leaks in your home? Has there been any flooding? Has there been, uh, you know, to, you know, and even what what do you understand about the history of that home? Because you know, obviously, they're not necessarily going to be the first people that have lived there. Yes. Um, So, um, you know, even I even ask questions, you know, I even ask questions around the topography of the lands that they're on and and what happens when it rains. Does the water go under your house or does it go around your house? You know, it's even like some of the drainage and stuff. So you have to be like a, you know, sleuth. Yes. Um, uh, Yeah, so and then, of course, you have to test those things to rule uh, other things out. So being uh, and it needs to be multi-system and um, multi-symptom. So just because they got significant fatigue, that doesn't mean they have that doesn't mean they have sers because right. they need to have they need to have significant fatigue plus you know other things. Yes. Um so yeah so it's super important to have a look at the whole piece and and that's why I think like uh, um you know uh, practitioners like naturopaths and integrated GPs you know we spend the you know we, we we tend to look at things holistically and look at all those things so um and we have the time. So, that's right. So, so 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 yeah I think that you know uh, yeah, so that's basically, yeah. And yeah. also the other thing too is not about their home, it's also their workplace and their and their car.
0: Yes, you know? actually, yeah, that's an important one, isn't it? I always forget about the car, but yes, I've had, uh, you know, the window cracked open, uh, it's rained, wet carpet in the car, yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> and and it's really important, um, you know, just as a side note there, that when those sort of things happen um, is that, is to always be on top of trying to dry things out within 48 hours. So So if that means you have to hire an industrial, you know, piece of equipment from a remediation um, group um, to do that, do it. It's worth it. Um, because you do not want anything to be wet for more than 45, 48 hours.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Mm. Um, and so you've mentioned that, you know, when helping your patients recover, you've already mentioned it's, it's a very much an individual approach. And so what would be some of the, um, say, interventions that you would use, your nutrients or herbs or lifestyle? And do you work in collaboration with other health professionals as well? Yeah
1: so I guess because I've been doing this for such a long time I've, I've really benefited from the training from Dr Schumacher but I also incorporate naturopathic philosophy um, and also I'm also really fortunately part of the ICA uh, ISEAI however you mm. want to say that um, group which is basically an international um, group of um, you know I guess thought leaders um, in this area and so really tapping into the latest of what you know, we're finding in practice and some of the research that's being done, et cetera. So I kind of bring that all together into a kind of like, I guess, a a systems-based framework in that, you know, yeah so I kind of look at it bringing all that stuff together so um which I think is really important because yes. this is a growing it is a not growing is the right word it is a um evolving um how we treat these patients and um and there's more and more research being done to help identify them as well so um, it's really important to be on top of that but um you know so of course when I go to um treat patients Um, patients i look at it from a probably predominantly a systems-based um framework um and then you know identify where they're at and what's happening to identify the you know the order of things but but mainly well the first thing is they have to get away from it the mold um which is probably the most challenging and then um um, which is probably another conversation, or maybe another question. I'm not sure because that's a big piece. But <laughs> yeah. the second, but the but I guess secondly is that we need to make sure that they are eliminating that their bowels are moving, they're producing bile because we kind of need because the mycotoxins will circulate through there, and we need to be able to um, get the mycotoxins out as best as possible. You need to look at to what extent how well they are in terms of um, their. Um, detox pathways and in particular glucuronidation because that's one of the key pathways that um where we um you know deal with mycotoxins yeah um we have to look at what you might do with inflammation because there's there's a lot of a cytokine storm happening and then the other layer is is that a part of looking at that individual is you know um often other things come with it so they might have mast cell activation they might have poor um they might they may be more prone to poor um metabolism metabolism of oxalates and histamines so you can't just go and throw in a protocol and go okay here have these things off you go um because a lot of people are sensitive by this stage by the time they come to me they you know they can't take a lot of that stuff because they can't they've got mast cell activation or something like that so so you have to take see where the patient's at yes um and then the other thing um is that they also they often is to um often consider yourself as part of a team because um they often need broader support so there's often trauma um uh, uh, that 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 either comes with the experience or already there uh, and mental health elements so that needs supporting yes um sometimes they have neural issues so that needs to be supported so so you know having other team members around that might be acupuncture or it might be um, psychologist it might be you know and so on um, you know bring that you know people in as they need um, and and to be honest um, I remember you know one of the things that stood out to me over the years of doing this is that I really noticed that people who had done, who did work on their um, psychological or, or spiritual, psycho-spiritual, would that be the word? Yeah. Psycho-spiritual <laughs> um, side of things yes. actually seem to do a lot better than everybody else. And I think that we now know what that is and that is about calming down the autonomic nervous system. Um, and so I think that piece of work is really important because that really makes a difference to somebody's recovery. Um, and, yeah, I do bring in um, other practitioners or, you know, work with other health professionals or, you um, like that, but also integrated GPS. Sometimes, so if if we feel that they need some um, pharmaceutical medication, yes, um, you know that's where. So, because I think the most important thing is to try and get that person out of where they, you know, like to pull that person out of the terrible vortex that they're in and yeah. move them forward. And if sometimes that means that we have to use things that may not necessarily be seen as then uh, and you bring on other practitioners, then so be it because. Um, sometimes, you know, some of those bi- more pharmaceutical-based binders can actually really um, make a difference in a shorter period of time. Yeah. Um, and, and in saying I'm not saying that it's for everybody because they also have their side effects and their issues and sensitivities with that as well. Um, so again, you have to look the person in front of you, but yes, I do work with other people to get outcomes for the, for patients.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's so complex and there's so many challenges in helping these people. Um, Mm. and you've just, you've mentioned many of them, but what would you say are some of the most, or the key challenges, I guess, is it that having that conversation that they have to move out of their home? Would that be one of the main ones?
1: Um, yes. I, well, I think well, look, there's a it's multi yeah. multiple. So, um, so yeah, I think the fact that your home is might be making you sick is probably the hardest. And yeah. of course, you know, being in lockdown in COVID for the last couple of years has been a little bit challenging in that regard. Yeah. Um, but also, you know, so people have financial challenges. They yeah. have the challenge of the trauma. Um, a, 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 of, and sometimes part of the challenge is actually getting their partners on board or the people in their household on board because they think they're just crazy people and sometimes um and so uh, and are often i hate to it sounds a big accusation but you know sometimes they also get gaslit a bit because i mm. will go to different practitioners and they'll go oh it's all in your head and so you know validation is important yes um but yeah so so yeah, some of the a lot of the challenges tend to be how big it is to, to move out of their place um, financial challenges yeah. um, support challenges um, and you know for those people that are in rentals I mean that's another layer as well because you've got landlords that you go, oh, well, you're the one who caused the mould because you haven't maintained the place. That's or, exactly right, yes. Or we'll just send someone in and they just come in and just wipe it off the walls and paint over it and off you go. And it's like, oh, my God, you know. Yes. So, um, you know, so because it's not a recognised um, uh, illness in Australia at the moment, it does present that challenge in in that um they don't necessarily get the support that's required.
0: Yeah, I understand. And I, unfortunately, as a renter, had that experience with the landlord as well and had to move out of my place immediately as they unearthed black mould when they were ripping out the bathroom. So. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Yeah, so I can uh, empathise with people going through this experience as well. <laughs> no,
1: you poor thing, that's not good.
0: Yeah, so, look, there has been a Senate inquiry into SIRS in 2018, um, but do you think this has led to any changes in our current clinical practice? And, Or do you think, you know, we've still got a long way to go in getting this recognised in conventional medical
1: practice? Um, look... I think the inquiry was a step in the right direction. Um, yep. It was we were so fortunate for it to occur, and a lot of that was uh, well, well, some of it was driven too because we've had um, MPs um, in Parliament actually get SERS, and that sort of helps to facilitate some of that. Right. Um, but but you know, we, and then we had COVID, right? So we started a momentum, and then we had COVID. But um, it was a step in the right um, direction. Um, I think there's some challenges. We've still got to get through to, for it to be recognised. Um, fortunately, the government did provide some support for research in this area um, back in, I think, they were in 2020, 21. The last okay. two years are a blur. Yeah. Uh, but, um, so there is some research underway, um, right? You know, linking in with um, some integrated GPS that are that are working in this area. Um, there's also been some other re- pieces of research done by. Um, uh other professions around um building structures and things like that so so the research is on the way to sort of get us to a place where it can be recognized okay um but but you know as with a lot of things um you know you see things in clinical practice there's research that's done and then there's another five or ten years maybe (laughs) before it might actually change you know the way you know things happen and you know that's for all sorts of reasons so I think that we've probably got some years ahead before it actually gets recognised but at least it's a step in the right direction and I'm actually it's actually terrible on one respect that we're all having this mold problem but but the, the the silver lining in that is that is that that because it's such a problem that perhaps it'll be it'll rise to the surface a little bit quicker than perhaps if we didn't have such a large proportion of the population potentially unwell so um so I think that you know, perhaps it'll happen sooner than, you know, th- than expected. But, yeah, we're we're on the way.
0: Yeah. And, I mean, definitely I think um, it's certainly been highlighted in the press over the last few months, which I think yes. is, is good. Or some misinformation, but a lot of good information out there as well. Mm-hmm. And so I think uh, just getting that information out there, educating people um, is critical as well. Yeah. So on that note, where can practitioners and the general public find out more information about mold illness
1: and mold? Um, well there's probably they can probably go to my website. I've got two websites. one is my name lisa Yeah. Um, and the other one is indigosagehealth.comau and oh, on those sites they'll find some resources around. Symptoms, etc., and also how I practice.
0: Yeah, fantastic, and we can put some links to those on on the site as well.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, so, well, that's been um, really informative. Thank you so much for sharing your personal experience and also your years of clinical experience with us. And I'm I'm sure there's a lot of practitioners and patients out there who'll get a lot out of this. So, um, thank you. We really appreciate appreciate you joining us today.
1: <laughs> My pleasure, Wendy.
0: <laughs> so, and thanks to you for tuning into this episode. We appreciate your support and feel free to leave us a review. We'd love to hear from you. Thank you.